Where's that dust coming from? Still finding debris after vacuuming? Eufy X10 Pro Omni Robot Vacuum has 8,000 PA of powerful suction to remove debris deep in carpets. And it's totally hands-free. Want to know more? Go to eufy.com. That's E-U-F-Y.com and discover X10 Pro Omni, the best-in-class all-in-one robot vacuum for only $799. This is an RNZ podcast. Hi, I'm Dan Slevin, sitting in for Simon Morris, this week on another at-home edition of At The Movies. A United Nations troubleshooter meets his match in Baghdad. My conversation with Sistani went really well. He can support the coalition if we hold elections under a new Iraqi constitution. We have our own plan for elections. Uh, we got to stabilize the situation. It must be soon, Paul. A high school senior running a successful drug business looks for a successor when she has to retire. All right, no. No way. Not after sophomore year. There's been rumblings of it. Hearsay. Rumors. Can't be the best faction without enemies now, can you? Well, Tara, you think we're the best? Neutrality seller. And a legendary Australian detective almost makes it to the big screen with a globe-trotting adventure. One laddered stocking. Not bad, considering I had to elude the entire Palestinian police force to pay you a visit. And what the devil brings you back here to Jerusalem? Hmm? I'm looking for a missing person. While we may see New Zealand cinemas open again in a few weeks with contact tracing and social distancing and all of that, it's not clear whether there will be any Hollywood blockbusters for them to show. Sony have all but given up on 2020, moving the last of their big titles, the Venom sequel that stars Tom Hardy, from October this year into June of 2021. We already know about the deferrals of films like the new Bond, No Time to Die, to Christmas, but a quick skim of the forward release schedule for New Zealand shows that only the indie distributors have plans to release pictures in May, June and July. It's a deserted schedule at the moment. Meanwhile, the company that only a few weeks ago bestrode the entertainment landscape like a colossus, Disney, just announced they were laying off 100,000 staff almost 40% of their global workforce. With the theme parks closed, cruise ships at anchor, retail squeezed and blockbuster movies and live sport on hold, Disney can see the writing on the wall, for the rest of 2020 at least. Cutting that many staff will save Disney an estimated 500 million US dollars a month, but they're still planning to hand over a $1.5 billion dividend to shareholders in July, and they still have $20 billion in the bank, enough to cover the wages of those laid-off cast members, as they call them, for three years. What does this mean for New Zealand cinemas? No Hollywood studio is going to release one of their completed blockbusters here if they can't release it in the rest of the world at the same time. Some of the marginal titles, uh, the new adaptation of Artemis Fowl, for example, will go to their streaming service, and some will become premium video-on-demand products. Is there enough independent product in the pipeline to fill local screens? 
With festivals like Cannes postponing or cancelling, even that premium arthouse product looks like being delayed. I know that the French Film Festival, which was touring the country at the time of the lockdown, is looking to relaunch as soon as cinemas are allowed to open, so it's not entirely doom and gloom. But like so many other sectors of society, uncertainty is the only constant. <clears throat> Hi. My name is Sergio Vieira de Mello. I'm Brazilian, and I'm presently the UN High Commissioner for Human Rights. This organization is the best opportunity you have in your life of achieving your dreams. But never forget the real challenges and the real rewards of serving the United Nations are out there in the field. Where people are suffering, where people need you. Eleven years ago, the documentary maker Greg Barker made a film about the United Nations diplomat and troubleshooter Sergio Vieira de Melo, who died along with 21 others in the bombing of the UN mission in Baghdad in 2003. The film was based on a biography of de Melo by journalist and academic Samantha Power, who herself would go on to become Barack Obama's ambassador to the United Nations from 2013 to 2017. And now, in 2020, Barker has returned to the subject of Vieira de Mello and his life and death in his first narrative feature film with the same title as his earlier documentary, Sergio. Vieira de Mello came from a family of diplomats and had spent his childhood following his father's postings to places like Beirut, Rome and Buenos Aires. In his own career, he started with the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees and worked in Bangladesh, Sudan and Cyprus. By the time he was posted to lead the UN mission in Baghdad at the time of the American-led coalition invasion, he already had a reputation as someone who could not only resolve conflict but was not afraid of being sent to the world's hottest spots. He'd already experienced conflict in Cambodia, Kosovo and even the Fijian coup of 2000. Those incidents are barely touched on in a film that focuses on two key postings, Iraq, where he lost his life, and East Timor, where he met the great love of his life, Carolina Ladiera, a UN economist who would travel with him to all his postings after Timor. I don't believe in being fashionably late, either. No, for a diplomatic meeting, never. So there are some occasions that call for being late. Oh, yes, of course, depending on the situation. My mother taught me always keep them waiting and leave them wanting more. And Carolina, by the way. Carolina Larriera, de Argentina. Dejó Wall Street para venir aquí y cambiar el mundo. Enviada para facilitar la política económica de nuestro gobierno de transición. You do your homework. Absolutely. That's something my mother... One of the most interesting choices in the film is the decision to put the relationship between Sergio and Carolina right at the forefront, like a classical Hollywood romance in exotic locations. The job often seems secondary to their obvious delight in each other, but when you have two lead performers who have such obvious chemistry together, it's probably pretty tempting to just let them have the run of the screen. Sergio is played by the Brazilian star Wagner Maura, and Carolina is played by the Cuban-Spanish actress Ana de Armas, who made such a stir last year in the terrific whodunit Knives Out. 
Now, I don't normally make a habit in my reviewing of commenting on a performer's appearance. Actors and actresses are objectified enough at the best of times without me contributing, but in this case I do want to point out that Maura and Dayanas might be the best-looking couple in the movies right now. Oh boy. There are times in Sergio when they remind you of Gary Cooper and Grace Kelly. They're a very easy watch throughout, but I can't help but think that their smoldering glances and old-fashioned screen charisma unbalances a film that I think would like to have a bit more to say about global politics, inequality, colonialism and American hegemony. We were sent here as overlords. But I really hope we can leave as respected colleagues. From now on, we take our orders directly from you. Because what we are about to do here is really important. We are about to build the first new nation of the 21st century. So let's get together. Stand up. Come here. Come closer. Let's introduce ourselves, please. Sergio does make a very strong point about Vieira de Melo's principles and how those principles were key to his success in those early missions. They worked for him right up until the moment when they didn't. In Baghdad, he wanted to demonstrate to the Iraqi people that he wasn't a lapdog of the United States occupying force, so he reduced the level of security around the compound, security that was provided by the Americans. It made quite a statement, but it was also the choice that allowed that truck bomb to get so close. There's another angle to that explosion, and I haven't been able to work out whether it's a commonly held belief or whether I'm just drawing a long bow, but the film seems to imply that Vieira de Mello was about to send a dossier to the UN Security Council listing human rights abuses by the American occupation, and that the bombing occurred on the day that dossier was due to be sent, I'm not sure that I'm supposed to be conjuring up a conspiracy theory about that or whether it's just sloppy storytelling. Sergio, the White House likes you. And the president, too. But surprises make Washington very nervous. Well, how can I help? Well, uh, you're meeting with Sistani for a start. That doesn't help. Gives the impression I'm, I'm, I'm not in control. I see. Listen, Paul. My conversation with Sistani went really well. He can support the coalition if we hold elections under a new Iraqi constitution. We have our own plan for elections. Uh, we got to stabilize the situation. It must be soon, Paul. The longer you stay here, the worse it will get. Please trust me. This isn't East Timor. You're not Viceroy here, Sergio. Welcome to the big leagues. <laughs> Sergio is rated 13+, plus, according to the Netflix rating system, for some artfully shot sex scenes and some terroristic violence. It's available for streaming now on Netflix. At the Haldwell School for Boarding and Day Students, there are five factions. The factions are realistic about the need for the student body to engage in their vices and are pragmatic in facilitating them. The first rule that they live by is that of not being a rat, and the only consequences they're concerned with are the ones that they impose themselves. The spades deal on the most classic of vices. Booze, pills, powders, 
fun. Led by Sella, with Maxie at her side, they will push you past your limit so that you know what your limit is. They consider this a kindness. At an expensive American prep school, the adults who are supposed to be in charge are blissfully unaware of all the nefarious activities going on almost under their noses. At least, they're not unaware exactly, they just keep on turning up too late, knowing that something is up and not quite able to put their fingers on it. While the hapless authorities fail to keep control, the five factions that run all the illegal activity, the cheating, the partying, the drugs, self-manage through peace treaties like mafia families. In fact, this is what Sella and the Spades, newly arrived as an exclusive on Amazon's Prime streaming service, feels like. Like a Godfather movie transported to high school. It's not the only time that high school has been used for some genre-bending. Ryan Johnson's Brick in 2008 made Joseph Gordon-Levitt a gumshoe like Philip Marlowe, investigating the disappearance of his girlfriend. It made terrific sense, especially when Johnson got the style so right. Seller and the Spades doesn't worry about aping the trappings of the genre conventions because it's doing a decent enough job of developing its own visual style. But it does line up with the themes and structure of a film like The Godfather, which concerns itself so much with legacy, reputation and destiny. But it's also quite funny because these kids are still kids and they like to think that they're making grown-up choices, but then they can get the language so wrong. There's a fox in your penthouse, Ella. What? A fox in the hole. Tear it. You've got a rat in the foxhole. A rat? No. No way. Not after sophomore year. There's been rumblings of it. Hearsay. Rumors. Can't be the best faction without enemies now, can you? Well, tear it. You think we're the best? Neutrality, Sella. Come by HQ for the games on Wednesday. Who's the snitch? Nobody knows. The sea's working on smoking them out. But, um, from what I've heard, your boy Max is getting sloppy. Sella, played by Lovey Simone, is the leader of the Spades. She's ruthless and strategic, but she's coming to the end of her reign. As a senior, her next move is to college, where she will be a very small fish in a big pond. She's very concerned about legacy and is looking for a protege, someone who can take on the mission and not risk losing everything that she's built. Along comes Celeste O'Connor as Paloma, a year younger, and she's the photographer for the school magazine. As Sella seduces her into the inner circle, we see that there are real consequences for her teenage hoodlums, but they don't see them until it's too late. It's noticeable that all of the non-adult characters in Cellar and the Spades have problematic teenage complexions. Every time you think you're watching adults, you're brought back down to earth by all the pimples and concealer. And for all these characters' naivety about the real world, there are some things that they understand all too well. They make the new kids take our photos because they don't take us seriously. That's a mistake the whole world makes. They never take the girls seriously. So it's like this. When you're 17, and when you're a girl, you've got the whole world telling you what to do with your body. Your mom tells you, change your dress. It's too fast, too short, too shiny. The school tells you, cover your shoulders, cover your legs, because they can't tell boys to keep it in their pants. And boys, they're the worst. 
They tell you they'll only like you if you look impossible. So you've got all these people telling you how to wear your skin, making you feel like whatever you want is the wrong slutty thing. And then you've got Spirit Squad. You know who decides our uniforms? We do. Is Seller and the Spades an allegory for America, for corporate territory management and relentless single-minded individualism? But actually, isn't it a kind of tribal individualism? You're free to be an individual as long as you don't stray too far from the norms of your own group. I'm not sure whether it is an allegory, but I hope it isn't to be taken completely literally either. The film would have important resonances for African-American audiences as we discover that the pressure that Selah is under is not totally self-imposed. As a part of the growing black upper-middle class, there is considerable pressure from her parents not to let the whole community down. There's too much at stake for everyone. But that's the kind of pressure that can only encourage someone to act out, to rebel even silently. Written and directed by first-timer Tayori Poe, Seller and the Spades premiered at Sundance at the beginning of 2019 and was snapped up by Amazon in what was quite a spree that year. What I like about Seller and the Spades is Poe's strong visual sense. There's a tremendous use of colour, which will especially pop if you have one of those new TVs that do 4K and high dynamic range. Amazon Prime is one of the streaming services that makes the best use of the new home entertainment technology. But Poe is also keen to rise above the clichés of the high school movie and to dig a little deeper into teenage psychology. And this bodes well for her future. Tyresha Poe. A name to keep an eye on. What do you think makes what we do possible? Trusting people to keep their mouths shut, trusting people to love us, to want us to succeed? Please. It's better to put the fear of God in their souls, Paloma. Better to have them fear your goddamn sneakers walking towards them on the concrete than to let them think that their actions don't have consequences. This is what it means to have power. This is what you have to do to keep it. Seller and the Spades is rated R on Amazon Prime, and I expect that's for drug use, some violence, sexuality, adult themes, etc. My gut says that it's probably aimed at and suitable for 14 and up, but I don't know what the law would have to say about that. One ladded stocking. Not bad, considering I had to elude the entire Palestinian police force to pay you a visit. And what the devil brings you back here to Jerusalem? Hmm? I'm looking for a missing person. Oh, damn you. Still the lady detective. I had rather hoped you'd come to pick up the tiny pieces of my broken heart. Still beating, as far as I can tell, Professor. I'm looking for a young woman called Shirin Abbas. Apparently she's in some kind of trouble with the authorities. Never heard of her. I'm sure that your hearing is just as healthy as your heart. I trust you don't think you can just come in here and milk me for information with your wit and your charm and your Canaanite scarab. From Jericho, a little gift I found for you. To butter me up? Like a crumpet. Mm. According to the release schedules, this was around about the time that Miss Fisher and the Crypt of Tears was going to be released to cinemas. It was going to be a bit of a bold experiment to see whether a beloved Australian television institution could do a Downton Abbey and blitz the big screen. 
Personally, I thought it was going to do pretty well. There's an audience for this sort of undemanding fare. And now, having actually seen it, I'm even more convinced that audiences would have enjoyed it. It's not actually very good, in purely cinematic terms, but it is campy, escapist fare, and I actually enjoyed watching it. It knows how creaky it all is, and that's its own kind of pleasure these days. Miss Fisher, played by Essie Davis, is an amateur detective in 1920s Victoria, a character that Agatha Christie might have invented if she'd been having a day off. For three seasons, the last aired in 2015, Miss Davis has been playing Miss Fisher, getting into scrapes and solving crimes, and wearing some spectacular frocks at the same time. Some of the production values, the costumes in particular in Miss Fisher, are marvellous, and some of the others, well, they aren't. Her uncle, Sheikh Khalil, is a business associate of my friend Lord Lofthouse. You know, Lofty helped overthrow the Ottomans during the war. From what I saw, Lofty and his cohorts did most of their overthrowing from the officers' lounge. So you know him? Tell my old friend, Sheikh Khalil, we'll do everything possible to help him find his niece. But if she is a serious agitator, it may be too late. She's a young woman with a voice. And you're a troublemaker, Miss Fisher. You may have acquired the trappings of British wealth, but you were born in Australia, the filthiest gutter of the realm. And I intend to send you back there. In this film version, Miss Fisher is in Jerusalem, then a part of Palestine, on a missing person case. She finds the young woman, but in making their escape, there is an unfortunate incident with a steam locomotive, and Miss Fisher is presumed dead. At her memorial service at the English country seat of her friend Lord Lofthouse, played by Daniel LePayne, she miraculously turns up, landing her gypsy moth in the grounds of somewhere that my wife described as looking more like the Bathurst post office than any English country house I've ever seen. A tiny amount of exposition later, this film does not hang around long enough for you to question any of it too deeply, and soon they are all back in Palestine, hoping to find a tomb, lift a curse, and reveal a dastardly plot. I found it a bit hard to keep up, to be honest, but do keep an eye on the butler. He's too well-known an actor to not have any lines. We also have this, Professor. Astrolabe. Take a look at this. The Star of Argiadae, symbol of the Argiad dynasty of Macedon. The royal lineage of Alexander the Great. This must point the way. Well, to the oasis, at least. You must hurry back to the Negev. End this curse. End the curse. That's what you do with curses, Jack. Miss Fisher and the Crypt of Tears is rated M for violence, according to the New Zealand Film and Video Labelling Body, remembering that, of course, it was supposed to be in cinemas around about now. The film is available now for digital rental at Apple, Lightbox and the Microsoft Store for $7.99 or for digital purchase from Apple or Microsoft for $24.99 or $26.99 respectively. And that's our program. We're listening to Brazilian singer Caetano Veloso's Oração ao Tempo from the closing credits of the film Sergio. És um senhor tão bonito Quanto a cara do meu filho I've got one more recommendation for home viewing, and that's the Australia and New Zealand specialist streaming service DocPlay. There you'll find hundreds of documentaries, including films that have won Academy Awards, films that have blown away New Zealand International Film Festival audiences, uh, and also highlights from smaller festivals like Doc Edge and the Architecture Film Festival. They've just added the 15-part series The Story of Film by the marvellous Mark Cousins, who I interviewed on this program a couple of weeks ago. 
There's a 30-day free trial, and thereafter, it'll only cost you $6.95 a month. You can find it at docplay, D-O-C-P-L-A-Y dot co dot N-Z. Before I go, I just want to acknowledge that a couple of weeks ago at the movies passed the landmark of 800 episodes. I meant to mention it at the time, but, you know, got a bit distracted. 802 episodes is a pretty spectacular milestone, so I hope you'll join me in congratulating Simon Morris for achieving it. And I'm sure he'll be back here to celebrate as soon as circumstances allow. I'm Dan Slevin, and you can find me on Twitter as at Dan Slevin, that's all one word, and there's more of me at rnz.co.nz forward slash widescreen. I'll be back with more suggestions for home viewing at the same time next week. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. 